When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the Thirty Years War. So last time we concluded our analysis of the early 1620s. We saw the English, the Dutch and then the Danish pool their resources and strengths together in the name of the common good. We even saw them form the Hague Alliance in December 1625. The Hague Alliance would face some severe tests over the coming years, but in this episode our task is to introduce an important member of that alliance, King Christian IV of Denmark. We need to explain why, after so many years beating around the bush, he felt the time was finally right to intervene in the Thirty Years' War. We've got a lot to get through today, so without any further ado, I'll now take you all to Denmark. The Kingdom of Denmark drew its power from accidents of geography, history, and of its dynasty. First, in the case of geography, Danish kings held captive the immensely lucrative Baltic Sea trade, because any vessel that wanted to trade in the Baltic would have to pass through Danish waters first. The two channels of water which flow between the two Danish islands of Funen and Zealand are known as the Little Belt and Great Belt, respectively, and the latter island holds the Danish capital of Copenhagen. In modern Europe, a sophisticated network of bridges and underground tunnels connects Copenhagen with the rest of Denmark. One can even travel from Copenhagen to the Swedish city of Malmo, just across the third channel of water, the Orizund. It was through the Orizund, or the Sound, that the majority of ships passed, and where the majority of tolls were levied. In the early 17th century, the Little Belt, Great Belt, and Orizund represented not merely a brilliant strategic advantage, but the monetary benefit was by far the most significant for the Danish state. If any ship neglected to pay these tolls, then the Danish navy, which had been repeatedly enlarged since the 16th century, would just block their access. Generally though, the ships did pay, and because they paid, the Danish crown was able to amass a private fortune of 1.5 million thalers by 1625. All of the tolls from the sound trade went straight into the king's purse, 
while his self-sufficient nobility drew their incomes from their land holdings. Significantly, the Danish nobility possessed over half of all the arable land in the Danish kingdom, even while they represented less than a fifth of the population. The king's relationship with his powerful nobility was largely good, but several decades building upon this relationship had taught the king a few things. First, the crown was expected to live of its own, meaning that, unlike in Britain, for example, King Christian IV was not expected to appear in front of these nobles, requesting subsidies or grants for a foreign war. Second, the Danish nobility didn't wish to upset the good thing they had going, and while they maintained a curiously medieval system of feudal knightly service into the late 1600s, they were pacific in nature, and they were wholly suspicious of any foreign schemes. A recalcitrant nobility was not necessarily a problem for a king of Denmark, though, because while he was a monarch and a king of Denmark, he was also a duke of Holstein, and thus thoroughly enmeshed within the Holy Roman Empire. The Oldenburg dynasty, the name of the dynasty that ruled Denmark, was a German family in origin, and although it did rule Denmark, it also retained its hold on Holstein, Holstein being one of the largest and wealthiest German duchies in the Lower Saxon Circle. All this talk of all these different German and Danish terms can get a bit confusing, so to clear things up a little bit, the two Danish duchies of Schleswig and Holstein would actually be taken from Denmark in 1864. If you've listened to our Bismarck Rise series, you'll know all about that. But suffice to say, up till that point in 1864, Schleswig and Holstein were Danish territories, whether they liked it or not, and in some cases they absolutely did not. Schleswig was the more Danish of the two. Holstein was more German and it was further away. In map terms, it was just to the south of what was then the Danish border. But in modern circumstances, Denmark now includes only a portion of northern Schleswig, and the borders of Germany now include Holstein and most of Schleswig itself. But back to our narrative, and the twin responsibilities of being a Scandinavian king and a German duke are actually really important for us to understand, because otherwise we won't really get why Christian IV of Denmark intervened in the Thirty Years' War in the first place. The distinction between his two regimes, and between the two hats he wore of being a king and a duke, are immediately apparent as well. In Denmark, Christian was expected to live off his own means, and the powerful Danish nobility, rooted in the Council of the Realm, would be slow to approve any of their king's high-minded machinations if they couldn't discern a benefit for themselves. By contrast, though, Christian's rule as Duke of Holstein contained no such restrictions. It could be argued that the king was more sovereign as Duke of Holstein than he was as king of the Danish realm. Since the late 15th century, this balancing act had been maintained with even different governments, the Danish Chancery and the German Chancery, acting in each region. To phrase this situation another way, the Danish Chancery couldn't tell the Danish king what to do if he operated in his capacity as Duke of Holstein rather than as their king. Thanks to his accumulated fortune from the sound tolls, the Danish king would be able to afford this independent policy, at least for a time. Even while the war would come to Denmark, at its declaration, King Christian IV was keen to act as the Oldenburg Duke of Holstein, thereby taking the opportunity for protest away from his Danish nobles. Exactly how powerful was King Christian IV of Denmark, though? Well, having achieved his majority in 1596, 
Christian ruled over one of the most powerful Protestant kingdoms in Europe. Once, Denmark had even been more powerful, as the nucleus of the Kalmar Union, which was effectively a united kingdom of Scandinavia under the thumb of the Danish king. This union did endure a messy divorce in the first half of the 16th century, with its most significant consequence being the release of Sweden from the Danish orbit. The Swedish state was small in population and it was economically poor, but the Danish Empire was hardly a powerhouse, especially when compared to its larger European neighbours. As Paul Douglas Lockhart wrote, Denmark laid claim to a great deal, but its power was greater on paper than in fact. Since 1536, as Paul Douglas Lockhart writes, the kings of Denmark claimed sovereignty over a vast array of territories, the Kingdom of Denmark itself, the Kingdom of Norway and its vassal state Iceland, three large and wealthy provinces in present-day southern Sweden, the Faroe Island chain, Greenland, the German duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, and even tenuously, the Orkneys. Collectively, it was not a wealthy kingdom. Only the Scanian provinces, the duchies and parts of Denmark had anything approaching a prosperous rural economy, and it was sparsely populated. Of the 1.5 million inhabitants overall, 600,000 lived in Denmark. Christian IV intended to build upon his kingdom's power and prestige by embarking on a massive armament and shipbuilding program, while also looking to the latest in military innovations and tactics then under the development in the Dutch Republic. Christian had Count John of Nassau's drill book printed in Danish, in a bid to improve the professionalism and quality of his troops. In time, Christian approved the existence of a professional standing army of 4,000 men to train conscripts and peasants alike, and he planned to subsidise this army with mercenaries in time of war. While he possessed an impressive ability to strike first, thanks to his large purse and the availability of German mercenaries, Christian also sought to secure his lands by building several fortresses. To maintain control over the sound tolls, it was essential that Denmark continued to occupy portions of southern Sweden, and to protect these investments, a total of eight towering fortresses were built to secure Scania in the south, while work was also undertaken at Christiania, modern-day Oslo, the capital of Norway. Two fortresses were also built to secure Copenhagen, three were built to guard access into western Holstein, and further works blocked access from the east into the duchy. In the case of his shipbuilding program, Christian spent six times more money on his fleet than on his forts, with incredible results. Total tonnage was increased from 11,000 to 16,000 between 1600 to 25, and in the process, Christian's shipbuilding style reflected a trend towards larger, sturdier warships, as the king adopted the latest and most innovative naval designs. Christian's core dilemma was provided by the unusual contract between the Danish king and his nobles. A long war would require requests of taxation, which would necessitate making concessions to the nobles and potentially reducing the king's freedom of action. Christian could, and in 1625 he did, decide to make war in his capacity as the Duke of Holstein, but if his personal cash reserves ran dry, he'd be at the mercy of the Danish nobles, who'd likely hold his previous actions against him. What Christian really needed then was a short, sharp war in Germany, or if he could get it, sufficient support from foreign allies which would render him economically self-sufficient and not having to rely on the nobles at all. 
the Hague Alliance seemed to take this box, and promises of subsidies from the English and Dutch made the King of Denmark feel a great more emboldened than he otherwise would have been. It should also be said that the King of Denmark had been successful in past wars. He had gained some brilliant advantages during the war with Sweden, which had lasted from 1611 to 13. The peace treaty from that conflict, signed, interestingly enough, by a desperate King Gustavus Adolphus who had just come to the throne, was hugely advantageous to Christian's coffers. The former Swedish vassal was committed to pay exorbitant reparations, which greatly boosted Danish prestige and property. It was the so-called Alvesburg Ransom, and it required Sweden's new king to somehow round up one million Reichsthalers, a currency not easily come by in Sweden. Otherwise, King Christian said, the Danish occupation of Swedish lands would continue. The sum was equal to four years of Swedish harvests, and it necessitated the creation of a new tax on all Swedish citizens aged 15 and above, which even the Swedish royal family would have to pay. Only soldiers on campaigns would be exempt from this new tax. The balance was made up by selling copper to its neighbours, and the Dutch also provided a large loan for a quarter of the bill, and eventually enabled the beleaguered Swedes to pay what was owed by 1618. The conflict with their Danish neighbour effectively shattered Sweden for a decade, and it secured Denmark's border with her former vassal for the foreseeable future. In short, the Danish king had made a point. Sweden was not up to the task of defeating its old overlord on the field, and its new king would have to pay this ransom or be destroyed. At this point, Christian was at the peak of his powers, and a great deal of optimism seemed to set in, aided by an economic boom which lasted several more years. Even his crown lands were becoming more profitable. After 1615, the king received an annual income of 200,000 Reichsthalers from his lands, a figure which steadily increased over the following years. The stability of Christian's position opened him up to the prospect of loaning vast sums to his nobles, who were then tied into contracts that greatly benefited the Danish crown and made it less likely that the nobility would publicly criticise his policy. In addition, the tolls leveraged on the sound meant that Christian was created as the wealthiest Protestant monarch in the world, with a personal fortune behind only the Duke of Bavaria. With his money to spare, he established the Danish East India Company, investing over 400,000 Reichsthalers in its maiden voyages and colonies. In the meantime, he increased trade with Iceland, undercut the Anglo-Dutch whaling competition, and established a silk factory at Copenhagen. As impressive as these initiatives and the wealthy status of the Crown's coffers were by 1625, though, all such gains were beholden to the bottomless pit of military expenditure, which consumed the vast majority of the Danish Crown's wealth. By 1625, Christian had been watching the events of the Bohemian Revolt and the Palatine War unfold with increasing unease. His familial obligations to Frederick meant that he was willing to offer advice to the man that had married Elizabeth, his niece, but he would go no further than urging Frederick to make some kind of compromise peace. It is significant that in his capacity as Duke of Holstein, Frederick met with Christian IV during a meeting in spring 1621, where other German princes were present. During their face-to-face encounter, Christian had demanded from Frederick, Who advised you to drive out kings and seize kingdoms? If your councillors did so, they are scoundrels. While he had been willing to send a letter of protest to the emperor regarding the imperial ban which had been pronounced against Frederick and Frederick's allies, and while Christian did declare his willingness to eject the Spanish from the Palatinate, at this stage, 
1621 at least, he was unwilling to make war against the Emperor in Frederick's name. The mere suggestion of war with the Emperor had apparently panicked the minor German potentates in the Lower Saxon Circle, and Christian didn't want to rely on these fickle princes for his security during the proposed conflict. Four years later, Christian's concerns had not significantly changed. He was not wholly confident that the Lower Saxon Circle would support him, and he had therefore sought foreign guarantees in their place. This recap should underline the important key feature of Christian's decision to intervene in the Empire by 1625. He did not take this decision with the expectation that it would empower his realm against Sweden or that it would increase his prestige in the Baltic. Christian's concerns were not so narrow, nor could they be since, as we have established, Christian was a German duke. Thus, when the emperor acted against Protestants and against the German liberties, he acted against Christian's ability to maintain his freedom of action in the empire. Christian's concerns in this regard, then, were as genuine and legitimate as any other German potentate. Neither Saxony nor Brandenburg had been thrilled to see the increasingly powerful emperor expand his authority. The difference between those Protestant electors was that while they were rooted solely in Germany, Christian IV was a German duke who also happened to be a fabulously wealthy king in his own right, and theoretically he could make use of the advantages that this position accrued to wage a successful war first and foremost in the German interest. He was a German duke who could harness his personal power as King of Denmark, avoid the jealous nobles, and emerge victorious with this curious arrangement, just as he had done in the previous war with Sweden. That at least... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Was the plan. Two great factors, aside from Christian's interest in German liberties, also spurred him on. The first was the pressing need to provide bishoprics and lands for his two younger sons. According to Peter H. Wilson, Christian was driven by his strongly Lutheran sense of family responsibility to provide for two princes who could not inherit the kingdom. The possession of certain key bishoprics, such as Bremen, the most lucrative, could bring with them further territorial advantages, like the control over rivers and their trade. If enough of these north-flowing rivers, like the Elbe or the Weser, were monopolised, then Danish tolls could be placed on them and the crown would be further enriched. The further into Germany that his influence was reaching, 
the more Christian could claim was rightfully his for the taking. Through pressure campaigns, he would wrest declarations of loyalty from the cities of Lübeck and Hamburg, and he could control their trade by occupying portions of the rivers upstream and levying tolls. Aside from his needy sons, though, Christian was also perturbed by the advance of the Habsburgs towards the Baltic and into majority Protestant lands. As a Lutheran king, the Counter-Reformation was a feared and loathed initiative, and the public progress of the Jesuits, including one famed trip by a Jesuit to Norway in 1604, moved Christian to issue a ban on Catholic worship in his realm by 1615. During this decade, Christian maintained an actively pro-Protestant foreign policy. He announced his support for the Elector of Brandenburg during the Ulick Cleave crisis as one example. Christian's reputation spoke for itself among Protestants, since he was nominated in the 1612 imperial election and the 1619 bohemian election. Each time it was hoped that Christian's moderate Lutheran outlook would ease the tension, but the King of Denmark never showed much outward interest for independent schemes that might leave him exposed. It thus would not be quite fair to judge that religious solidarity had little to do with Christian's decision to intervene, as Peter H. Wilson has noted. This is because, in Christian's case, it was fear of Catholic encroachment towards the north, rather than necessarily a desire to defend Protestants across the empire, that really moved him to act. Christian distinguished himself as the paymaster of Protestant designs, be they formulated in the Palatine Court, in Berlin, or in London. Between 1609 to 20 alone, he lent 779,000 Reichsthalers to his brother-in-law, King James, in London, to the Elector of Brandenburg in Berlin, and of course to Frederick the Elector Palatine. Once White Mountain declared Frederick's defeat, and Emperor Ferdinand's harsh terms became known, Denmark was pulled towards the English and the Dutch as a natural ally. Christian did all he could to further this process, even relinquishing at long last the official Danish recognition of the Dutch Republic's independence in 1621. This was surely a ceremonial act, but it sent a clear message nonetheless. It was during the aforementioned gathering of German and foreign Protestant potentates in spring 1621. You'll recall this was where Christian gave out to Frederick and called his counsellors scoundrels, but it was also here that Denmark, along with her allies, sent a stern message to the Holy Roman Emperor. The signal threat to raise an army between them of 30,000 men, which would restore Frederick and remove the Spanish, was a potent threat. But due to circumstances we've previously examined, this early manifestation of European cooperation fell apart. King James would pursue no policy that jeopardised his Spanish match. The Dutch were quickly overcome with the renewed commitments necessitated by the resumption of war with Spain from April 1621. And in Christian's case, his Danish chancery pressured him heavily to dissolve what few troops he had assembled in the Lower Saxon Circle. So this experience in 1621 was a bitter one for the Danish king, and it led him to back down from his commitments to these meetings altogether by the summer of 1621. Retreating from conflict in the empire, Christian turned inwards and consolidated his own position instead. Having misfired once, it seemed, the Danish king was not particularly keen to reload his weapon and try again. However, as a Lutheran and a German duke, Christian would never have been able to remove himself from the dramatic increase in confessional tension which accompanied the outbreak of war in the Habsburg hereditary lands. Christian was in any case too distracted 
crafting schemes against petty German rulers and cities, so that Danish influence expanded and his sons received their substantial inheritances. Having been gradually drawn into the orbit of the anti-Habsburg camp, as the conflict spread across Germany, the war was brought very close to home from 1621, when another Christian, Christian of Brunswick, acquired levies from the Lower Saxon Circle to the chagrin of Emperor Ferdinand, who had instructed them to expel the vagabond Christian of Brunswick wherever he resided. Christian of Brunswick would be defeated in August 1623, but it didn't remove the sour taste in both parties' mouths. The Lower Saxon Circle remained suspicious of their emperor's earlier demands, and the emperor remained bitter and angry that his subjects hadn't obeyed his instructions. Christian had been immensely offended at the transferal of Frederick's lands and titles to Maximilian in early 1623 as well, largely because he feared that Christian of Brunswick would have his lands confiscated in retaliation for his rebelliousness, particularly after the latter's defeat. Christian of Brunswick owned lands in the Lower Saxon Circle, and Count Tilly, the commander of the Catholic League forces, had lurked menacingly on the border with the circle during the preceding years. It was entirely possible that Emperor Ferdinand could seize Christian of Brunswick's lands and hand them to Catholic loyalists as he had done with the Duke of Bavaria. There was also another reason for the Danish king to be hostile towards any suggestion of dispossessing Christian of Brunswick. This generalissimo and friend of the Winter King also happened to be his nephew. Again, a familiar pattern emerged over 1623, when Christian had tried to mobilise his Danish council and the princes of the Lower Saxon Circle to act. Short of some sharp threats, Tilly would surely have entered the largely untouched region of Germany to the south of Denmark. Despite his best efforts, Christian IV of Denmark had signally failed to raise or maintain an army of sufficient size to defend the region. The princes of the Saxon Circle provided insignificant contributions for their own defence, and his nobles had undercut his efforts at every turn to raise an army even of 4,000 men. This proved fatal for the safety of the Lower Saxon Circle, who were occupied by Tilly's triumphant army from late 1623, as Tilly's men entered their winter quarters. By the spring of 1624, requests from the Diet of the Lower Saxon Circle, in other words, all the representatives of that region, gathered together and asked Tilly to move on. Winter was over and his soldiers didn't need to be quartered there anymore. But Tilly refused. Not only did he refuse, he also, along with some other imperial agents, made some demands of his own. The princes of the Lower Saxon Circle would continue to support Tilly's troops, and they would also contribute men of their own to combat the luckless Ernst of Mansfeld, in addition to his Dutch paymasters. The Spanish Netherlands would be aided, fortifications as far afield as Hungary would be repaired, and the Catholic League would be hosted without protest. This was much too far, even for the normally timid and divided princes of the Lower Saxon Circle. They rejected these demands out of hand, united their interests, and invited their emperor to exact his vengeance. Instead of vengeance, the emperor sent an emissary to Copenhagen in July 1624, requesting similar terms. In response, the now angry Christian IV sent the diplomat packing with the stark demand that he could not guarantee peace with the empire unless Frederick was immediately restored to his palatinate. Just as the diplomat returned empty-handed, an embassy from King James 
arrived in the Danish capital. Embittered and backed into a corner after several years unsuccessfully arranging a Spanish marriage, King James was much more amenable than usual to a concrete Danish alliance, and King Christian, who had been spurned and undermined by the Habsburgs, was eager now to cooperate. The building blocks of the Hague Alliance were thus laid. Subsequent negotiations led to Christian's emissary appearing in the Hague the following January to finalise the details and plan for the conflict which would follow. As we know, such commitments were solidified in the Hague Alliance, a process which Christian became involved in from January 1625, when the negotiations for that alliance first began in earnest. It was while the Hague Alliance was taking shape that Christian became persuaded even further of the wisdom of intervention, and his allies wasted no time egging the Danish king on. The new king, after King James had died, King Charles, even sent a fluent Danish-speaking ambassador to Copenhagen in June 1625, alongside the first large and promising subsidy from England. If there was more where this bounty came from, Christian would be completely liberated from ever having to defer to his greedy nobility at all, and he would be able, through his own means and those of his allies, to fund what amounted to a private war. King Christian was on the move from May 1625. He made his way towards his Holstein duchy with a significant body of troops. That same month, he had been appointed commander of the Lower Saxon Circle in his capacity as Duke of Holstein, and it was in this position that he pursued the war against the Imperials. Flushed with optimism in the first half of 1625, the Danish council even provided Christian with a grant of 200,000 Reichsthalers, a very rare thing for the Danish nobility to do. In addition to the apparently secure promises from the critical English and Dutch quarters, Christian marched with an army of 20,000 German mercenaries and peasant conscripts, with the expectation that he'd pick up more levies from the Saxon circle along the way. As of yet, with the Hague Alliance not finalised, the Danish king was not guaranteed the support of his allies, but his decision to march at this stage did send a severe message to the Emperor and to the Duke of Bavaria, who both adopted desperate measures in response, as we'll see. Delays followed over the summer of 1625, even though Tilly's army was smaller than Christian's at 18,000 men, and was plagued by the twin evils of disease and lack of forage. As the two sides prepared for confrontation, Christian was thrown from his horse into a seven-metre ditch while inspecting fortifications. The fall was this close to being fatal, and while he did recover his strengths, he was incapacitated and depressed during August and September, apparently because of the incident. During this lull, both sides suffered further, as more of Tilly's men were lost, and several contingents from the Saxon Circle deserted and returned home. During this period, Christian ignored several entreaties from the Elector of Saxony and the King of Spain to mediate. The Hague quickly became a haven for the failed dreamers of the anti-Hasburg cause, as Ernst of Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick moved what remained of their followers to the Dutch capital and campaigned for a place in the next round of hostilities. Further reinforcements would arrive in 1626, including 8,000 Scots marching for the honour of the late Queen Anne, the sister of the King of Denmark. While gathering in The Hague, it did not take long for disagreements to arise between the three major allies. The Dutch and British fleets were sent on the ill-fated expedition against the Spanish, which proved to be a catastrophic waste of resources, not to mention a strategic failure. Due to this miscalculation, 
Anglo-Dutch paymasters for Christian's army went into arrears before the Danish king had even left to seek battle. This certainly boded ill for the Hague Alliance, but it was nonetheless signed by early December 1625. According to the original document of the treaty, the signatories felt obliged to intervene at the right time to prevent the all-too-violent and unbearable progress of these bad intentions and oppressions, to restore and conserve the aforementioned freedom, the rights and constitution of the empire against the foreseeable ruin, and to oppose all those who currently, or in the future, cause such trouble. Of the 16 articles which the treaty contained, the second established the military contributions of the Danes, with His Highness the King of Denmark obliged to maintain an army of 28 to 30,000 foot soldiers and 7 to 8,000 horse in the field, provided his confederates support him in sufficient and appropriate manner. It was declared in Article 6 that none of the confederates shall leave this alliance until, through God's grace, the above-mentioned peace and order is restored in Germany. In addition, there was scope for widening the treaty to include France, according to Article 10, to include Sweden, according to Article 11, to include Venice and Savoy, according to Article 12, to approach the electors of the Empire in Article 13, and even to approach Transylvania in Article 14. It was declared in addition that this Hague alliance would not in any way alter the agreement made between His Majesty of Great Britain and their Lordships of the States General, which shall remain unchanged in its present form. This point, Article 15, illustrated the strong Anglo-Dutch relationship, but it also hinted that if the Hague Alliance were to fracture, these two powers would at least have each other in their joint struggle against Spain. Interestingly, Christian IV wouldn't confirm the Hague Alliance until March 1626, apparently wary of the fact that its foundations were not as solid as they had once appeared. By that point, it could be argued that the Protestant European powers external to the Empire had never been more unified and threatening to Emperor Ferdinand's designs. This may well explain why Ferdinand had not simply stood by and hoped for a miracle in the peace negotiations. Instead, he had worked to appoint a generalissimo in his name, someone separate from all other influences other than that of the Habsburg family and keenly motivated by this sense of mission, as well as the chance for personal enrichment and glory. His name was Albrecht of Wallenstein, and he was preparing to confront the house which King Christian IV of Denmark had spent the last several years building. In the next episode, we'll examine the stunning arrival of Wallenstein onto the scene, and what that meant for the Emperor and the widening of the war. We'll examine how the Hague Alliance fared after its first true test, and we'll see what was next for the anti hausberg cause. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 33 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out Sharp Mind Media. Myself and Anna are really excited about it, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.